one of the joys of being a, a campus minister is that you get to see the grace of God unfolding in the lives of students. It's one of the pleasures that I get to, to, to have by being in your life. But also, if you stick around long enough, you're going to walk with them through the, the stuff, right? You're going to get to see the hard realities of the world that they live in. And I can remember a student many, many years ago who um, he uh, had started to come to RUF, that he had grown up um, in and around the church, but his friends had invited him to come to RUF, and so he began to come. And this student, um, it wasn't until he came to RUF that God began to really reveal to this student more about himself. And he began to understand something about the grace of God that was on offer to him. And therefore, this student began to read his own Bible more seriously and perhaps really read it for the first time. Now, what does any of this have to do with Romans 7? Why do I share this story with you? Well, it was precisely this text, this text tonight in Romans chapter 7, that this student was reading that began to ultimately perplex him. Why? Because he said all of his life he had understood that to be a Christian, that to be a real Christian meant that you did not sin. And yet, despite what he believed, his experience really did tell him differently. Y'all know what I'm talking about? What he believed, his experience, big old gap. And here in the words of Paul, he found a partner. He found a traveling companion. Because what Paul was talking about matched his experience. It seemed that Paul was talking about struggling as a Christian. And this began to undo everything that the student believed. I just want to ask you, what about you? Have you ever wrestled with this tension? You see, if you're a Christian, do I dare even ask a simple question? Do you struggle? And some of us find it laughable because we're like, bro, that's my whole life. You know, does the Pope wear a funny hat? I mean, you know, does a bear, you know what, in the woods? I mean, it is, it is as real as the sky is blue for me. Of course I struggle. And others of us, too, when we hear that, though, maybe we have grown up in a different camp. That though we would consider ourselves to be a Christian, struggling, oh, no, no, no. Mm-mm. Don't you d- dare do that. Because the point of being a Christian is to know the victorious life. To be a Christian is to have your best life now, apart from all sort of sin and struggle. And perhaps if you're not a Christian here tonight, you have actually heard people who would say they are Christians, and you look at their life, and you see that gap as well. And so how would you treat someone who would take the name of Christian, even though there seems to be a gap between what they say and what they believe? Well, all of these are great questions to wrestle with tonight. And perhaps you've found yourself in one of them. But what I want you to see is that it's actually very, very easy to assume that to become a Christian means that you will not sin anymore. And even if we do, we best keep that secret underneath the rug. Why? Because it's easy to see, it's easy to believe that for Christians to admit weakness seems to undercut their message and become dissidents of the truth that they proclaim. But what Paul is telling us here tonight in Romans chapter 7 is nothing could be further from the truth. Because in fact, when we own the depth of of sin in our own lives, we become signposts, pointers 
to God's grace for the watching world. And as Dr. Brian Chappell put it, I love this sentence. Listen to what he says. Is this going to work? There it is. Okay. Here it is. When you acknowledge what sin does to you, you are the greatest witness of what Christ does for you. And y'all, this is what Romans 7 shows us. Paul has been telling us for six chapters over and over that to be a Christian is to be forgiven and righteous, not perfect. And though they have this new status before him, it does not mean that Christians won't continue to wrestle with sin. And it is to this wrestling that Paul draws our attention by talking about the struggle. And he's going to talk about the struggle in us, the struggle by us, and then lastly, the struggle through us. So let's take a look what I mean at the struggle in us, the struggle within us. This first point here, Paul told us in Romans chapter 6, if you remember from last week, that you, if you have been united with Christ, you, your old person, has died. He or she is dead, right? And that you have been raised to new life, even in this present life, to live a life unto God. But he is going to show us in this text, in Romans 7, that there are two warring presences in each one of us if we're Christians. It's very simple. You saw it there. That every Christian has residue, I like that language, residue from his former life called, Paul uses this word, the flesh. The flesh. Now, Paul is not talking about skin and bones, epidermis and tendons, okay? That's not what he's talking about. Instead, he's talking about a vestige of a former self. And that flesh is set at war against the new you, that new you that we talked about last week. That flesh continues to wage war on that new you with the desires of your new remade self. So much so that when Paul does in fact sin, look with me at verse 17, look what he says, that it is no longer I, this remade new person, this new, new man, new woman, united to Christ, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells in me. Very simply, this is what theologians have called indwelling sin in the believer. Now, there is a massive debate here that I've got to tell you about. A massive debate because it's this. Is Paul talking about in Romans chapter 14, chapter 7, 14 to 25, is he talking about somebody who is pre-conversion, non-Christian, or is Paul talking about somebody who has been converted and this is the experience of the post-converted Christian? Does that make sense? Is this happening before somebody gets converted or somebody afterwards? Huge debate, like towering scholars on both sides. But I'm going to throw my name in the hat and I'm going to show you why I think tonight that Paul is talking about the post-conversion experience of Christians. Here's what I think. Here's why. First, the verb tenses in verses 14 to 25. Hang with me. Put on your thinking caps. Y'all are big girls, big guys. Put on your hats. You need to think about this. This is theology. We're going to do some tonight. The verb tenses in verses 14 to 25 are all present tense verbs. The verbs before verse 14 are all past tense verbs. Paul is talking about his present experience. I do. I desire. That which lives in me 
present tense verbs. We use present tense verbs when we're talking about what? Our current experience, right? Does that make sense? That's my first reason. Second reason, number two. Paul tells us in verse 22 that here he, here he is, he delights in the law of God. It's just verbatim from the text. Later on in Romans 8 verse 7, we're going to see that that is something that is impossible for an unbeliever to do. Does that make sense? Secondly, that's my second point. Third, third, third argument point is that Paul is aware in verse 19 that nothing good lives in me. The non-Christian cannot see that about himself. And you may say, that's not true, I'm not a Christian. I, I get it, we've got to have a longer conversation. Just trust me on that, we've got to do a lot of theology to get there. But the idea is, is that that is something that can't, they can't be brought to see either. So for these reasons, listen, here's, here's my point. Paul is talking presently about the life of somebody who knows and who has been saved by Jesus. And he is talking about the normativity of the Christian life. Let me put it with no big language. He's saying this, that inside of you at this moment, if you are in Christ, is still remaining sin that will wage war on you such that your life as a Christian is marked by struggle. Y'all see that? That's the point that I'm trying to make. Let me see if I can drive this home with a quick illustration. After World War II ended on May the 7th, 1945, VE Day, there were still several outposts of the Axis powers, not only in Germany, but around the world. And either because they didn't know that the treaties had been signed, or because of this rebellion that continued in these forces, there were troops that were still engaged in warfare even after the war was over. Does that make sense? They still had bullets in their guns. There was still artillery in their cannons. They were still firing even after the war had ended. In fact, 101 days after VE Day, a German submarine boat, U-977, no, U, mm, U-977, yeah, submerged in the south, uh, emerged from the South Atlantic to find out that the war was over. What's my point in telling you this? I want you to understand tonight that much like there were these outposts of rebellion still going on after all peace treaties had been signed, such is indwelling sin in your life. It's still real, but the battle is over. Does that make sense? You're a new man, you're a new woman, but there's still sin in you. That sin's days are numbered. It will not win. It has been defeated. Sin's power over you has been crushed. Its presence within you has not yet been worn out. It is coming. And that's my last little sort of thing I want you to see, is that sin's presence in you, while it remains, it is diminishing. Why do we need to know this? Two quick points. One, you see, whether you're a Christian or not, if you believe that the presence of sin in the life of the believer discredits that person from receiving the love of God, let me put it positively, put it like this, that to be loved by God, your behavior has to be perfect. That if you believe that, that it would make sense that any sort of sin in your life 
would cause you to come unglued. Because your, your actual standing before God is in the balance. But the gospel tells us that it's utterly 100% false. It is not true that our lack of sin is not what makes God love us. And if that's true, the presence of sin cannot make Him get rid of us. Hallelujah. Amen. That the presence of sin in your life will never make God say, I'm done with you. You see, this gives us a new category from that great reformer Martin Luther. He used the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. And it simply means this, that you're simultaneously just before God's sight, righteous in His eyes, and yet you remain a sinner, ever being changed, conformed unto God's image. Secondly, it means this, that for some of us, you really need a more realistic view of sin in your life. That's what you need. You need to understand what is really in you. And you must really grab it. But you need to hear the words of uh, a former pastor, Jack Miller. He had this phrase, and I love it. I love it. He says this, cheer up. You are a lot worse than you think you are. And cheer up. You're more loved than you could ever dare hope. Paul is saying that you really are worse off than you could ever imagine. But the grace of the gospel comes to you regardless because God so loves you. Y'all, here's my point. Paul is telling us that the Christian life is marked by a diminishing presence of sin. Diminishing but still present. And when you begin to see this, that God saves you in spite of your remaining sin, I suggest to you that you begin to see God's mercy and love for you in fresh ways. Because you begin to understand that He really loves you you at your worst, not the wish, you that you wish you were. And that is profoundly comforting, is it not? Because if you've ever wrestled and said, for the thousandth time, I want this sin to be done with me and me to be done with it. But what happens? A thousand it's kicking your butt again. And you're now wondering, does God still love me? And the answer because of the death of cross on the, Christ on the cross is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes struggle in us. Well, does this mean then that we just roll over and die and surrender to the sin that's in us? The answer is no, which takes us to our second point, the struggle by us. This idea of the struggle by us. You see, some would say, we just need to let go and let God do what He's going to do. And this is an equally wrong way of viewing what the Christian life is all about. It is, as its core, surrendering unto sin. But Paul assumes that the Christian life, here it is, is a struggle, that it's real, that it's a fight. How do we know this? Paul assumes that because sin is present in us and will be until we die in the life of the believer, that the Christian life will be one marked out by struggle. Look at verses 21 to 23 here. He tells us this. What does he say? So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is, in his life, and in the way it fleshes itself out, another law, what? Waging war against me. That in every single one of us, therefore, Paul is saying that there is a struggle, a war going on, and it is a war, <coughs> desire between to do what we... There is a war between us because of the desire to do what is right, and the inability 
to carry it out. And this assumes, therefore, that there is a struggle that we ourselves are actually engaged in. The believer, like Paul, wants to live obediently before God. That's what he's talking about. I want to do good. That the ba- Here's this phrase. That the baseline identity of who you are has been remade. And at your core, at your bottom, so to speak, while you might have all these other desires that you say, you know, I, I mean, I know I love God, but X, 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 you know, X, Y, Z keeps showing up. Paul is saying that at your base, who you are is somebody who's made new. That is what it means to be a Christian. And then everything else is going to be fleshed out and worked out by His sanctifying grace for the rest of your life. Look with me at Titus chapter 2. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. But this just illustrates this. I put it up on the screen as well. Listen to what he says. Paul writing again to uh, Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I get to use my red thing tonight. This is awesome. You see this? The grace of God. This is so cool. Bringing salvation. Here we go. Grace brings salvation. Hallelujah, amen, we're all happy. This is what God does. It's amazing news. But that grace also what? Trains us. Boom. Here it is. That participle goes back to the grace. This qualifies that. It it trains us to what? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live lives of self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Let me put it like this, y'all. God's saving grace... And God's training grace always go together. They're never separate. They always 100% go together. And that's what Paul is trying to tell us right there in Titus chapter 2. In other words, Paul is trying to show us that God gives us grace to fight sin in our lives. Now, I want to show you a couple of strategies that we take that don't work and then one strategy that does work as we learn to fight sin. And the first is embodied in a little story. It's embodied in a very, very famous work of English literature that I went back and read on Monday and Tuesday. I didn't go back and read it. I read it for the first time. That captures this ever so well. It is amazing. You must read it. It's only like 80 or 90 pages. What is it? It's from Robert Louis Stevenson's classic novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So I read it in preparation for tonight, and it was awesome. Jekyll, here it is. Dr. Jekyll notices that there lives inside of him two natures, one inclining to moral good, one inclining to moral evil. And so he hopes through chemistry and potions to be able to separate out these two creatures within him. And if he can do so, he will finally be truly good in Jekyll because all of the evil has been contained over here and localized in Hyde. But something shocking happens as we come to find out. Jekyll can't control the appearance of Hyde in his body once he's let him out. The harder Jekyll tries, the more the hideous Hyde comes out. The more he tries to suppress Hyde, the more he feels the compulsion to let Hyde out. And at one point, Jekyll was on his good side. He was trying to be ever so good. And then in an instant, something happened. He was watching people in the park. He says he was sitting on the bench. He was watching people in the park. And he said, he got in his mind. He said, you know what? I really am better than them. And what happened? Listen to what Stevenson writes. And 
At that very moment of that vainglorious thought, this proud thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea, and the most deadly shuddering. I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts. I looked down, and I was once more Edward Hyde. The more he thought of his goodness, the more the monster would come out. And y'all, this is what many of us do as we try to fight sin. By applying more law, more rigor, we yell at ourselves louder, we make more robust promises, but it will never work. Why? Because in a part of the text we didn't read, it's because the law only aggravates sin. It comes into sin's presence and starts kicking up the dust in sin's life to make it come out even more. Y'all, that's telling. Because it's a strategy that often we use. Let me anchor down. Let me, tell, let, me beat, let me tell myself to try harder. And what he's saying is, it won't work. Why? Because obsessing about our sin, more than we obsess about our Christ, will never help us in our struggle against sin. That's strategy one. Two. Second strategy, a lot shorter. It's more a non-strategy. We see sin in our lives and we do nothing. We go to church. We go to RUF. We have Christian community. But as soon as temptation arises, we literally do nothing and we utterly succumb to it. There is no battle. There is no struggle. Struggle. We give in to the temptation. This, tra- this strategy says this. Oh, well. God will change me when He wants to change me. Not seeing that Romans 7 is talking about engaging our wills in the fight as well. Y'all see that? And this is important because some of y'all need to hear me say, I'm, gonna, I'm really going to usher up a gentle, I'm going to be a firm warning, warning but I'm going to say it gently. If you are a Christian and you are not fighting and struggling with sin, if you find yourself readily giving it over to it, you really need to be concerned. You really need to be concerned. Because Paul is saying that the identity of a Christian is that they fight. And if it's not a battle in your life, you have question, you have grounds to question where you are with Jesus. Now, that might be troubling, but he's saying it's, you will fight if you're a Christian. So where is the hope? Where is the hope and the true strategy? You have to look where Paul looks. In verse 24 to 25, where does Paul look? He looks to the finished work on the cross for him. We fight sin by having the object of our loves changed. What we love changed. And when we see that Christ has died for us, while you were still a sinner, Romans chapter 5 tells us, His love for you there melts you. It melts the hardness of your heart where you actually want to love Him. A few points of application to sort of drive this home. Y'all, first, no one ever gets to the point in the Christian life where they don't struggle. No one. It is normal. If you're not fighting sin, if there's never a battle then the chances are that you don't understand what it means to be a Christian. The struggle is necessary, but cheer up. The struggle is the mark of a growing Christian. Y'all see that? That when you are struggling and when you are fighting sin, you are actually growing. You You are the person that is 
being remade because you are, you, are doing your, you are doing your best with all God's power to fight the sin in your life. And that is the mark of a, of a growing Christian. But lastly, and this swings us into our third point, but because we begin to get our own sin in our lives, it makes us a lot more delicate and a lot more compassionate with those in our lives who struggle as well. Do you see that? How do we know that? Well, that takes us to this last point, this idea of the struggle seen through us. I guess it's already up there. Um, Y'all, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see Paul's crystal clear honesty. Y'all, I don't know if you know who Apostle Paul is. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He trained under the best Judaic teacher in his day. He was somebody that was Jewish through and through. He loved the Torah as much as anyone could possibly do it. Then Christ comes crashing home in his life in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, and it utterly changes him. And what we get in Romans chapter 7 is life after that conversion, and look what Paul begins to say. The apostle, the foremost theologian in the first 100 years of the church, a church planner that brought churches all over the Mediterranean, he is saying what? I struggle with sin. The apostle is saying that. And why is that so comforting? Because I want you to see that Paul does not dodge sin. He does not deny it. He does not deflect it. He doesn't blame shift and say it was somebody else's fault. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. And y'all, we desperately need to see this. Because why? Because by seeing someone of the caliber of the apostle Paul struggle with sin and be honest with it, it is an invitation into vulnerability like his. Y'all, that is crucial and key in your life right now. Because here's the principle. That vulnerability begets and gives rise to more vulnerability. Y'all see what I'm saying? That if you are somebody that is honest about who you are and about the struggles that are in your life, certainly in appropriate ways, I love the phrase redemptive vulnerability, right? We're not just throwing our junk around everybody, but the point is is that you're redemptively vulnerable about the grace of God in, in your life. That that begins to liberate those people around you in your communities. Because they begin to see that what it means to be a Christian is not having it all together, but being a man or woman who really is in need. And listen... I don't know if you have any non-Christian friends, but let me tell you what they're thinking. They're looking at your moral record and how you try to keep your life together. And they say, tacitly, inside of them, they're saying, I don't want anything to do with it. Because why? Because I can't do it. Because I can't keep up. And we begin to liberate people when we begin to be honest about who we really are before Jesus. And that vulnerability begins to beget more vulnerability in people's lives. So I urge you to follow in the steps of the apostle and to be someone as well who has begun to know and to taste the real grace of the gospel in your life. How many of y'all have ever heard of Dr. Brene Brown? Brene Brown? Okay, a few folks. This is great. She's a professor. She has spent all of her life studying the power of shame in people's lives. She has this wonderful quote, If you put shame in a petri dish, it needs three things to grow. Three things to grow exponentially, excuse me. 
Secrecy, silence, and judgment. But if you put the same amount of shame in a petri dish and douse it with empathy, there we are, it can't survive. I love this quote, so I put it up here. She says this, The two most powerful words when we are in struggle are me too. Would you begin to believe tonight that in Romans chapter 7, Paul is looking at you and he's looking at all your failures with porn. He's looking at all your failures with food, with body image stuff. He's looking at all your failures with your tongue, with your gossip, with all your self-righteousness, with your substance abuse. And Paul is looking at you and he's saying two words. Me too. I know what it's like to struggle. And just in that moment, what is it like to have the Bible say that about you? that when we begin to struggle, other people can begin to be set free as well. You see, where might God be nudging you, even tonight, to trust Him to take off the mask, not only for your sake, but for others around you? Where does the bulletproof Kevlar need to be replaced by the real clothing of Christ for you in your life? Y'all listen to me. True community feeds on vulnerability and need. It needs it. Perfection, bravado, and quote, having it all together are not only shams through and through. They kill anyone being known and knowing one another. Perfection, y'all, has no true friends. And some of y'all actually know what I'm talking about. Because you've devoted your whole life to being perfect and you're lonely as they come. Y'all, I want to begin to say tonight to you, There is freedom in Jesus to be vulnerable and to be real. And our vulnerability begins to act as a gateway through which others can experience and know the real grace of Jesus as well. So this leaves us with our final question. Where do we find the power to actually struggle? The the resources to oppose sin, to be honest about who we actually are, and the power to be vulnerable so that others can see Jesus as mighty to save. Well, you have to come back the next couple weeks in Romans chapter 8 to find a full treatment of that. But for now, we look at Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Paul looks at his despair. He looks at his brokenness and he just throws out this phrase, this exclamation, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you're like, yeah, who will? And look what he follows it up with. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of Him, y'all, we can have deliverance from our body of death because there was one who was not delivered through the real death of His body. In His death, Jesus paid the penalty for all of the sins we continue to struggle with so that we might be absolutely delivered. You see, that was the story of the college student that I mentioned earlier. As he was reading Romans chapter 7, he found in himself his own despair. I can never do the good that I ought to do 
and that condemns me? Where? Who can save me from this death? And he saw Jesus dying for him. How do I know that? Because y'all, I was that college student. You see, that is my story. I, your campus minister, was converted reading Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. And in fact, if the truth be known, it is this text that, in my experience from it, that drove me to do a whole series on the book of Romans. Because I want you to see what Paul has seen. I want you to know tonight your deadness. And I want you to know the despair that that brings. And I want you to cry out, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And I want you to see Jesus on offer to you tonight to be able to rescue you. This is the gospel for you tonight. For when you see that Jesus saves you when you were at your worst, when you were helpless, y'all, there is real power for you to fight sin. Why? Because it cannot kill you. It cannot. It already killed Jesus. In other words, Jesus lost His struggle so that you will win yours. And when you see that Jesus lost for you by His death, there really is new life for you. Let's pray.